0: please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. good morning. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day for us to walk together through God's Word and to be able to sing His praises. Um, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask, if you will, turn over to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, and I pray that you received an outline as you walked in here this morning uh, for us to journey along together through God's, through God's Word. I'm going to ask you a personal question this morning, and I want you to answer it to yourself for just a moment. And answer it honestly, before yourself and as well as before the Lord. What comes to mind when you first think about God? what comes to mind when you first think about god now you have an outline before you or maybe even a, a pad or a paper i'm going to ask if you will do an exercise with me i want you to be honest and write down those first initial thoughts on your whatever paper you have before you because how you've answered that question has eternal consequences has eternal consequences If you and I were talking right down front, and I were to ask you that question one-on-one, and if I were to ask you, okay, tell me your answer. What's what's your first thought when you think about God? I'm able to deduce two things. Number one, I'm able to find out if you are a true born-again believer. That's number one, most importantly. Number two, what I'm able to understand from your answer is your current worldview. Your current worldview. And what is a worldview? It's how you view every aspect of this life, every current season, every action, every word, every deed, everything through the lens of your worldview. And the reason why I want you to ask that question to yourself, and the reason I want you to write it down on your paper for just a second, is because how you answer it matters. It matters to us here in the life of the church, but it also matters most importantly before God. And what I'm afraid has taken place in the life of our churches all across the world, all across this nation, is that we have replaced God with a small view of who God is. We have replaced the God of the Bible with some sort of man-made, feeling-based idea of who God is instead of looking at Scripture and seeing who the God of the Bible is. You see it left and right. You see it all across this country where you hear from prominent pastors and you hear responses like, I think God is like a whatever, or I think God is like this. It's honestly I'm not trying to be funny here, like a forest gump kind of answer. You honestly never know what you're going to get from some of these pastors in these day and age. And what we've done is we robbed the people of God from the true knowledge of God of what the Bible says about who God is. R. C. Sproul was asked one time many years ago, I don't know when Uh, The famous question, Dr. Spohr, what is the problem with the church today? You know what his answer was? The problem with the church today is that they don't know who God is. And what a startling answer. And the reason why I asked you to do this little exercise with me and for you to write down your first initial thoughts on that piece of paper that you have before you is because I want you to be able to take from where we are now to the end of this sermon, and I want to see if your answer changes at all, and I pray it does. Not because I have some elegant argument, it's because we're going to the Bible to see who God is. And ladies and gentlemen, I think this is dire straits for us in this culture today. It doesn't take us long to flip over the news, to look on social media, to see that there is a vacuum of anything of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you say, thus saith the Lord, it's now considered hate speech immediately. And that's the world we face today. And quite frankly, I don't think it's going anywhere. And so how you answer this question of who God is has eternal consequences. And this morning what we're going to look at is we're going to look at a number of scriptures today for us to be able to answer this question of who God is. We're going to answer this question of who God is So if you have your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 11, and I'm going to read through 15. Exodus chapter 3, listen to the word of God with me. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and there shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, and you shall serve God on this mountain, The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is God's word. If you will, let's bow your heads, and let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to lead us in our time this morning. Eternal Lord and Heavenly Father, guide us through your word. Teach us through your word. Sanctify us through your word. Grow us through your word. Lord, transform us like we're reminded in 1 Corinthians Lord, we are being transformed in the image of Christ. So allow your word to do the work in our life, sanctifying us, Lord, in your truth. Your word is truth. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. This section of Scripture in Exodus chapter 3 is probably one of the more famous passages in all of Scripture where we see the famous dialogue of God and Moses at the burning bush. And here, when God tells Moses, you're going to be the deliverer of Israel, you're going to be the vessel I have chosen to deliver the people out of the bondage of slavery, out from the bonds of Pharaoh, Moses does what everybody, I think, who has human nature would ask. Let's restate the question, God. He wants to be able to make sure he's getting his answer right. And look with me, starting in verse 11, how God responds to Moses as he has just received his call to go back to Egypt. Verses 11 and 12 is this back and forth question of God said, Moses, who should I go to Pharaoh and say, sent me? And look what God says in verse 12. He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign. I will be with you, I have sent you. It is the pure presence of God and only the presence of God that is going to be with Moses and the people of Israel. That's it. It's not a man made army. It's not some man-made object. It is through God's presence alone that is going to be with Moses and do this great deliverance from the hand of Pharaoh. And what a statement to come back to Moses with. And then he goes a little bit further. Moses again, God, if I come to Israel, they're going to ask what's happening. And then he says in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to this to the people, I am has sent me to you. What is God telling Moses? God is telling him, I am the self-existent, all-powerful, all-sufficient God of the universe. That's your answer. And that's what you're going to deliver to the people of Israel and to Pharaoh himself. What is God doing us? God doing here in Scripture? This is our point if you have your outline before you. God is stating his self-existence before Moses and eventually for the people of Israel and Pharaoh. And what a way to respond back to God. And the Hebrew, this idea of self-existence that we see from the great I am is the word to be. So God is showing us that he has always existed before time even began and will continue until forever and ever and ever. There is no beginning and there is no end. And that's what God is saying to Moses. And so He goes a little bit, and so when we look at this text together, this idea of God's self-existence almost takes our breath away when we are honest before the Lord, that God is self-existent. But that's what we see here in this response from God to Moses. There is a theological term that if you were in shepherd society, I should almost get you to raise your hand. If you're in shepherd society, you should know this answer because there's a theological term behind this called the aseity of God. So if you know somebody in Shepherd Society, here's your homework. Go see them and ask them about it because they are subject matter experts on this. So guys, i put you back in the corner. And so the aseity of God comes from this Latin term from ase, which means from himself and of himself. It's an amazing statement, isn't it, from God to Moses. And this is a massive truth for us to think about. God tells Moses his name is Yahweh, and from his name, From his name alone, Yahweh means that he is mysterious, yet he's also known. God is showing that he is his otherness, yet through his otherness, he's always existed. For a second there, it takes us just a moment to take a step back and go, this just doesn't necessarily make sense. But it has to make sense, and it logically makes sense. Because God is the starting place for everything. And this is the answer God tells Moses, this is what I want you to say. And in fact, this is what the entire scripture points for us, that God is self-existent. We see, and you have in your outline, Psalm 90, verses 1 through 2, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. See that key word there in Psalm 90 with this idea of generations. We also see it here within Exodus, chapter 50, uh, Exodus 3, verse 15, when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The reason why he states that, it shows that from generations past, from generations forward, God is there. Again, helping us to understand his self-existence. Look, another example for us. If you have your Bible, you can flip there with me. Back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, What? God. Simply stated. What was before the beginning? God was. We even see this idea in the New Testament in John 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So even in John 1, where we are seeing the first echoes of the Trinity brought forth into Scripture, we see here that Jesus was with God in the beginning. It's an amazing and profound truth for us to think about as Christians. And this is the God of the Bible. The Puritan Matthew Henry, I love this quote that he says. He says, The greatest and the best man in the world must say, By the grace of God, I am what I am. But God says absolutely, and is more than any creature, man, and angel can say, I am that I am. There's a lot in a name, isn't there? Especially within Old Testament time, a name carried significance family heritage, duty, responsibility, and, the, and so much more. When you were to give to a name to your son and to your daughter, it signified a personal and as well as a biblical meaning. And here, God says, my name is I Am. What a way to respond. What a way to state himself to Moses and as well as to the people of Israel and us today. But we, all, we see this also in the Bible Pulling from this truth and, and building this truth of God's self-existence. But we also see this in some of the best confessions of faith that we have to affirm these doctrines to us. The Westminster Confession in chapter 2 says that God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in unto himself, all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made. What a profound confession to affirm to us this biblical truth. What a profound statement. But we also see two major points from God's self-existence that we need to understand. Since he is all-powerful, he's existed before time began, it naturally leads us to go back to one of those Bible verses I gave to us. Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, like we said, but if you look with me in verses 29 through 31, we show this as he is the, everything comes from him. He put everything into motion by the words from God. Genesis 1, 29 through 31, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding in seed of the face of the earth, every tree with its fruit. You shall have them for food, and every beast of the field that I have given them. It's God who creates, but it's also, we see here, and these two verses, it is also the God who sustains by his providence. He sustains the universe to be. Everything we see even today from the hot air yesterday to the cold today is all because of God's providence. He's allowed it and put it into motion. Revelation 4.11 reminds us that even from his glory he creates. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And we also see this idea that he is creator, but we also see that he is Lord over creation. And what do I mean by that? Am I I bifurcating terms here? No. Being Lord over creation also sees that he governs it. He tells it what to do. I think one of the greatest examples that we can find our, in, our, in scripture alone is in Joshua chapter 10. If you have your Bible, I'm going to ask if you will, turn over with me to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. Here is the famous battle that Joshua is leading with the people of Israel. Chapter 9 tells us this, that the countries to the west, excuse me, to the south, are rising up against Israel. And they go to battle, starting in chapter 10. And look with me, in, starting in verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord, and the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said to the sight of Israel, this is Joshua's prayer, sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped. And the moon took vent, and the nation took vengeance on their enemies." As is this not written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of man and the Lord fought for Israel. God told the Moses to stay and it stood. What an example of God being Lord over creation. And of course we see this in the New Testament in Luke chapter 8, remember when Jesus and the disciples were with his boat? Storm is raging. The disciples are scared. What do they do? They wake him. And what does Jesus do? Starting in 22, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And the disciples were asking those questions like only the disciples can do. Who is this man that even the wind and the seas obey him? The key to understanding Jesus, who is God incarnate, is to understand he is not only creator, but he's also Lord and has authority over creation. This is the God of the Bible. And this also points us to a second reality from his self-existence. God does not need man. God does not need us. If God needed us, he wouldn't be God. He cannot be God if he's dependent on us, finite creatures, who are, by the way, sinful, You're sinful. I'm pretty perfect, but the reality is, if he was dependent upon me, he might have he might have a chance, a fighting chance. That's a joke. That's a joke. But the reality is this: he is not dependent upon man. If he was, he would not be God. He would not be God. Isaiah forty-five nine reminds us of this. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, "What are you making?" We see in Psalm twenty-four, one: "The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the earth and those who dwell therein." Job forty-one, eleven. After thirty-seven chapters of God being silent, God speaks in thirty-seven, thirty-eight, and this is what He says to Job in chapter forty-one: "Who was first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine." What a statement of who God is. God's not dependent upon us. He doesn't need man. And I know you may be asking the question, Kenny, this seems a little harsh. Man, you're coming at me really hard here. Well, guess what? I'm not. God is. So don't blame it on me. Blame it on God. He's taking us out of the equation to to, to behold the glory and the power and the majesty of who God is. He takes man out of the equation to see our rightful place before him. That's what we see from God as self-existent and creator and how he is not dependent upon us. He is all-sufficient God. And this is the reality that we face here because man has always been in search of the beginning. We've always been trying to find that spark. Where did it all begin? This idea of self-existence doesn't just, it's not some new thought process or metaphysical search from the scientific community that we have just come upon in this day and age. People have always been trying to search for who God is or where did it all begin, what's before the beginning. As a lot of you guys know, I love to learn. I love to learn about science. A lot of you have heard of me before. I like to read about biographies and, uh, and a little bit of a history uh, nut myself. But I also like to see train of thought through science. Fascinates me. That God has given men and women all over this world through, through the ages, minds to be able to craft scientific Uh, methods, and theories, and medicines to be able to help us. Now, I know there's a lot of bad stuff out there, so don't email me, but the reality is this. It's neat to see it take place, and one thing that's always just scratched my curiosity is the large super collider in Geneva, Switzerland. You ever heard about this? The Hadron super collider, where they are throwing atoms at each other on that 17-mile track, and they're trying to basically create what? The God Spark. And if they would just watch The Da Vinci Code, they would realize it's already been solved. And so that's also a joke. But, but the reality is this. I've watched this thing over the years take shape. And when it opened up in 2010, they didn't find anything. They didn't find anything. They shut it down a couple of years ago and for upgrades, which I find that fascinating and that they had to upgrade the thing to figure out what was going on. It's kind of irony within itself. And also the reality is this. It's located in Geneva, Switzerland. What church theologian is from Geneva? Calvin. I would love to wake him up from the grave and ask him his thoughts on this. Uh, Maybe I wouldn't, but I just find that ironic. But the reality is, is this. When I was reading an article recently about how they cranked this bad boy up, I want you to hear a part of this article. Physicists have been trying to find what is dark matter, what suffuses the cosmos, where does the beginning truly begin? Physicists hoped to find out in 2010, and even before the upgrades, and now that the machine has been turned back on, nothing has shown up. No particular new particle, no new dark matter. Frustratingly, the standard model, which is the God particle, has remained unshaken. They can't find it. Here's the reality. If they are faced with the truth of Scripture, they would know this fact. God is at the beginning. God is the one who put all this into motion. They don't want to face the reality. Romans eleven thirty six 36, For from him and through him and to him are what? All things. All things. To him be the glory forever and ever. So what do we do with this truth of God being self-existent? What's the application for us? Number one, it should fuel the flame or stoke the flame of worship. It should stoke within our hearts worship. I put before you in your outline the wonderful hymn. I love old hymns, but it is the old hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God, Only, Wise. Look, I put some lyrics down there for you, but Look with me, immortal, invisible, God-only, wise, and inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, glorious, ancient of days, almighty, victorious, the great name we praise. Thy life is giveth, great and small, true life of all, Father of pure light. Thy angels adore thee. We praise, we render thee. Tis only the splendor of light that hideth thee. What a glorious song to sing about the self-existence of God. Number two, we should also understand this truth, that the God who is the great I am, who has existed before time began, whom will always, always from generations to come, will always be, they should also to see that he is a personal God. Listen, the aseity of God has driven a lot of people away from the faith. It has. In fact, before the sermon I was reading about men who have fled the faith because they thought God was too big. But what we know from Scripture is that God, yes, he is all-powerful, he is self-existent, but he is altogether personal. And, he came to, and we came to know him in a personal way through Jesus Christ, who God is also known as what? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us, as Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1 reminds us. So we do not have a distant God who doesn't know this, knows us. No, we have a personal God who by the power of the Holy Spirit regenerates our heart to believe in him, and we come to his faith, lives inside of us. The third person of the Trinity living inside of us. Tell me how is that distant? What a beautiful truth. And three, as Christian, it should humble us. It should humble us before our God and to know our place before the Lord. So this leads us naturally to our second point together in God's word. If God is all is self-existent, He's self-sufficient, not dependent upon any human creature, nothing man-made, where does this lead us next? God is sovereign. God is sovereign. I get goosebumps when I say that. God is sovereign. This is just like a good bowl of chili just gets better and better and better. You know what I'm talking about? Something that just brewed and stewed for a long time. This is really the bedrock, the seat for us as Christians. This is the glue that holds everything together. gets me excited talking to you about it. But what we realize from the sovereignty of God is this is also the foundation to which we're able to build the tall and the magnificent tower of, for us to know the majesty and the glory of who God is. Because sovereignty is, you'd go down the street and look at these big towers being built. You know, if you look down over the gate, you see that these builders have have dug hundreds of feet into the ground to be able to support massive, massive towers going all across Raleigh. And this is what sovereignty does. We dig deep and allows us to build up and to see his glory and power. God is sovereign. And this is a term here in the Christian church that we have used a lot of times. We've said it a lot that God is sovereign. And we see this, if you turn back in your Bible, back over to Exodus chapter 3 for a moment, you see that from the great I am, in verse 14, I am who I am, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. We can pull from this passage in Exodus 3 that God is also sovereign. And what is sovereignty? In the Hebrew, we get the word mamlaka, which means kingdom, means dominion, means reign. It means he is his lordship. He reigns over everything in the universe, everything in this world, and everything in the stars and the skies above. And we also see this from this great definition from Dr. Steve Lawson. I put this in your outline. I've always loved this quote. He defines the sovereignty of God as God is God, not merely in name, but in the full reality of his kingship. That is, God is always always does as he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases, which whom he he pleases. This is the sovereignty of God. I think it's a wonderful definition. The Bible affirms this reality of God being sovereign over and over and over again. Psalm one and three nineteen. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. First Timothy one seventeen. Now to the King eternal, immortal and visible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. First Timothy Six, just a chapter over, which God were being back in His own time. God, the blessed, the only ruler, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. In Psalm ninety-seven, one, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. He reigns over all. He is Lord over all. All creatures, all people, all acts of creation is seen and known by God. In the past. and in the future, which means God ordains all things. Look with me in Exodus 3, where we see this idea of God ordains all things to pass. This is back in Exodus chapter 3, so flip back over there with me in your Bible. Starting in verse, I'm going to start back in 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So you see, God sees. He sees. Look with me in 17. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me with us. And now please let us go with three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, unless compelled by what? By a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt, and all the wonders that I will do, in and after that he will let you go. A couple of things we need to see here from this text. So God tells Moses, the name, the I am has sent me. But notice this, God knows exactly the response of Pharaoh. Notice in this text here, there is no surprise in God's words. He's not saying, if this happens, what if this takes place? There's no plan B, there's no option C, nothing like that we see here. God knows the outcome because he has ordained it to come to pass. He knows of Pharaoh by his mighty hand, is going to release the people of Israel so they can come back to this mountain and worship, like he told Moses in Exodus uh, 3, 9 through 11. And I know this is a hard theological truth for us to understand. I'm not naive. The God is sovereign over all, and that he ordains all things to come to pass. I know you may be scratching your head, it is a hard theological truth to swallow. But the reality is, this is what the Bible teaches. This is not made up. This is what the Bible says. And this is, for the Christian, yes, it does make our, us scratch our head, but the great thing about scratching your head, as Matthew 10 reminds us, even the hairs of your head are numbered. And as beautiful as mine is, it's many. <laughs> and God knows every one. And so, the reality of this, if he knows the hairs on our head and even knows when the sparrows fall, he knows everything. The Bible is clear that he knows all actions and foreordains all. Psalm 16:1 The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs sixteen four: The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs, Proverbs sixteen nine. The heart of the man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16.33, Grant just walked through this back in our family month a couple of weeks ago with the idea of the sovereignty of God. A person, the lot is cast into the the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Job even knew this in the midst of his suffering. Job 14.5, a person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months, and have set limits that he cannot exceed. Job, the psalmist, the teacher in Proverbs, God knows all, reigns over all, and ordains all things to come to pass. Even the Westminster Confession, chapter 3, affirms this truth for us again. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Now, the reality of this truth always forces us to pregnant questions. Number one, is God the author of evil? No. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. He is pure. He is holy. James one thirteen reminds us of this. When tempted, no one should say that God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. First John 1 John 1.15 this is the message that we have heard and declared to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God cannot sin, but he does allow evil to accomplish his will. And, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not naive to know that's not easy sometimes. It's not easy. It doesn't take long for us to look into this world. And to be able to see there is suffering taking place over, seems like every day. Every day. But when we realize that God is ordaining these things to come to pass, to conform you in the image of Christ, and for your character, your conduct, to be made holy because He is holy, then we realize that the end game is for our good. But I know this is not easy to to swallow sometimes. The second thing is this. If God ordains all, are we robots? No, we are not robots. The Bible is clear over and over and over again. God is sovereign over all, but man has a responsibility. Revelation 20 reminds of this that one day we will sit before the judgment seat and we'll be judged for every single thought and action and indeed, Everything will be judged. Which is scary to think about, isn't it? No matter if you're alone in your house, just doing chores, or you're having an in-depth personal conversation with somebody about the things of God, everything will be opened up and examined before the Lord, which should convict you even in this moment like it is for me. Because your life matters, what you say matters, how you manage your time matters, how you spend your money matters, how you're dealing with your spouse matters, how you're viewing your current season of suffering or joy matters, everything matters to God. And we have a responsibility to act according to the righteousness of God poured out to us in scripture. There is no other mandate, there is no other option. And this is the God of the Bible. He's holding us up for us this righteous standard but we also see this idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and the picture of salvation. Look with me, I I believe I have it in your outline in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. Men of Israel, hear the words of the Lord Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So there's the culpability. You knew this. Verse 23, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan the foreknowledge of God. Let me stop there. The plan of redemption was known before time began. Again, pretty heavy. But then he goes on a little bit further. You, crucified and healed by the hands of lawless men. This is the picture where we see man's responsibility and God's sovereignty here at the cross. You crucified him. But again, God ordained it, sent forth his son Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins, to take the wrath of God for us. This is God's plan all along. And what a great hope that it is for us to know this is the heart of our self-existent all power for God, that he is also a God who redeems. We are not left to ourselves. He has sent forth Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost. He saved us from our plight of sin. And with even God's sovereignty within every matter of life, we do see it with salvation. If you have your Bibles, turn over with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Verse 12, she was told the older, this is Rebecca, will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. They are quoting Malachi 1 3. Now, you ladies in morning glory, I'm putting you on the spot too. Remember, Grant walked through this that first time. So, if you know a lady in morning glory, they're subject matter experts on Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So, if you know a lady in morning glory, time's up. You're it you know about the election of God. So back in 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he who says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. This truth is all throughout scripture. And yes, it is a deep truth of who God is, but the Bible just doesn't stop here in Romans 9. We see it also in Ephesians, if you flip just a couple of pages over to Ephesians chapter 1. I believe I put this in your outline for you as well. But it says right out of the gate, right in his opening few verses to the letter to Ephesus from Paul. Even as he chose, even as he chose in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons of Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise, to the glory of his grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. He even goes a little bit further into Ephesians 1.11. In him we have ordained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What a glorious truth. What a glorious truth. And amazing to think about it, that if God who is all sufficient, who has existed before time even began, who will always be, and if he saved you before the foundation of the world, if you are a part, if you were a Christian today, doesn't that make your salvation all the more sweeter? To know this divine and eternal truth of who God is should shake you to the core of who you are, but it also should take you to the core because you did nothing for yourself. It's all by the grace of God that you've been saved. And he had to work within you to believe. And you also see responsibility even there that we have a choice. Yes, it's a divine prerogative, but yes, we see it within Scripture alone. And to also to take heart, Christian. As Philippians 1 reminds us, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good working, you will bring it to the completion, to completion of the day of Jesus Christ. You will never lose your salvation. Jesus will keep you. What a glorious truth to be reminded of. What a glorious truth to be reminded of. And this is the picture of who our God is. This is the message of the gospel that God sent forth his son Jesus, like I said just a moment ago, to take the wrath of God on our behalf, to pay the penalty that we deserved for our sins that separated us from a holy God, that kicked us out of the Garden of Eden. But thanks be to God for the great news of Jesus Christ, that he has saved us from our plight and has saved us from our sins. And if you don't know Christ today, I beg you from everything in me, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Come to faith in Jesus today. You have questions about what I'm talking about? I'll be right here after church. Come see me immediately. Don't hesitate if you feel that prompting you within your heart to say, I'm a sinner and I need saving now. Call the name of the Lord and you will be saved. But this also helps us to see this. Since God has orchestrated salvation to be known before the foundation of the world, that doesn't mean that we are not to share the gospel. That's one of the common things and mistakes we have. We think since it's like the great Charles Spurgeon quote, we have no idea who is God's elect. If we think we do, Katie bar the door. That's not good. That's no good. But what we have to see is the Great Commission is clear. Romans 10 is clear. Blessed are the feet who share the good news. We have a command from Christ to fulfill the Great Commission. So do not hesitate, whether in your work, your community, your family, share the gospel. But here's the other side that I want to be able to share with you. God's sovereignty is that glue that puts so much together, and it is a hard truth for us to process sometimes. I'm not going to lie to you; it was hard for me. I was telling our shepherd society a couple of months ago, when, a couple of weeks ago, when I was teaching that if anybody ran harder up against God's sovereignty and the self-existence of God, it was Kenny Jones, like a brick wall. I didn't like it. Because you know why? It stripped me from myself. It stripped me from my man-made philosophy of who I thought God was, who I like to put God in my own personal pocket and whip out whenever I had a joy, or especially in times of hardship, if we're really being honest with ourselves, instead of looking at the God of the Bible. Because it's really during those hard times where the sovereignty of God is like a sweet peace that passes all understanding. Like John Piper says, it's like a bed of comfort for us when we rest in the truth that God is sovereign over all. And especially like I said a moment ago, especially when, as we live in a fallen world, through the evil that's in this mist in this world, when suffering takes place, to know that God knows exactly what's going on, and God knows exactly the response and the outcome and all those things and more, Doesn't that take you great comfort to know that he will never leave you or forsake you and you're not walking through this world blindly and that we have the word of God to guide us every single step of the way? We're not left to ourselves. We're not left to ourselves. So don't let the sovereignty of God overwhelm you with fear, bad fear like phobia fear. Let the sovereignty of God be that salve to you because I can tell you personally, It was for me. A lot of you in this place know, and I've said this a few times, that God has ordained for me to see a lot of death in my life back to back. I'm the only one left in my family. My mom and my dad and my sister have all passed away. And a lot of you know that, but a lot of you probably don't know the timing that all of it took place. My mom died in September of 2011 from a long, hard fight of battle of cancer. She's with the Lord now. And just two months later, Catherine and I got married. But then two months later after that, uh, something really shook me up that even now, as you can tell, it, it's hard for me to put to words sometimes. But two months later, January 21st, 2012, my sister uh, took her own life. Like with any tragic death, with any suicide, it takes you Take your breath away. And Kath and I were newlyweds. We had no idea what we were doing. And here we are as a newly married couple trying to face the reality that my sister had committed suicide. And I remember one day I was back home. My dad was still alive at the time. He died just sadly a few years later. Um, but my dad and I were sitting in his living room. And The TV wasn't on. It was just he and I. And we were kind of talking back and forth, not really carrying on a conversation. Just words would come out and we just talk. But I remember that even in that moment, I was praying just for help. Lord, just please help me. Anybody had morning prayers like that? but here's what came to mind because someone shared these verses with me and I began to rehearse these over like I was trying out for a sports team. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Isaiah 43. Fear not for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Listen to verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. And I love you. Tell me, does not the sovereignty of God give you a peace? Especially in the midst of suffering. And listen, this isn't just me. There's a lot of you in this room today that are going through suffering. There's a lot of you in this room today that recently or have in the past or you will in the future where you're going to get that call from the doctor to say, we need you to come back. There's a lot of you in this place today that you look at your paycheck and you go, we just cannot make it to the end of the month. There's a lot of you in this place today that are having relational difficulties with your spouses, with your loved ones, with your siblings, with your children. There's a lot of you in this place that you have no idea what's gonna happen in the future. And you're ripped to your core with fear. There's a lot of you in this room and online watching now that have lost your job, or you will lose your job because of some maybe layoff, or you can't find a job. There's a lot of you in this place, like me, where I took, took great comfort in Isaiah 43 that you've recently lost a loved one, the death of a spouse, a child, a parent, a dear friend. Christian, God is sovereign over every single one of those acts for the glory of his great name and for your good. So, even in the midst where you feel like all you want to do is shake in your boots from fear, hold on to Christ. Hold on to him with everything that you have. And may the sovereignty of God be not only the bed and the glue that puts everything together. Pinot, the great God of the universe, has a plan for your life. And it is for the glory of his great name. And yes, hardship is going to come, but take hold and take heed to the words of Christ. For I have what? Overcome the world. Be like Job. The Lord gives, and what? The Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of what? The Lord. This is who our God is. This is our great God who is the self-existent, all-powerful creator God, not dependent upon you, not dependent upon me, who was sovereign over everything from salvation to the acts of man. So again, I want to go back to the question I asked you for a moment ago. Look down at your answer. What was, what was your first initial thought when you think about God? God. Maybe it's an attribute. Maybe it's his love, it's his grace, it's his mercy. Maybe you think about your own personal testimony of when God redeemed you, when God saved you. Now I want you to take just a second and write down your answer now. And my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that it's changed. To see the glory and the majesty and the praise and the sovereignty of who God is. Because this is the God of the Bible to whom we serve. And this is the God, the great I am, who sent forth his son Jesus, who reminds us in John eight fifty eight, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is our Christ. This is the Messiah. And this is the God to whom we serve. Jonathan Edwards, I'm gonna close with this quote. I couldn't say it in any better way. Who can honestly say anything after Jonathan Edwards? The great Puritan preacher says this, Let us therefore give God the glory of his sovereignty, as adoring him whose sovereign will orders things, beholding ourselves as nothing in comparison with him. Dominion and sovereignty require humble reverence and honor in the subject. The absolute, universal, and unlimited sovereignty of God requires that we should adore him with all possible humility and reverence. That's my prayer for us today. And I believe this sermon is going to help us continue to see our current sermon series in the Gospel of John. But I also think this is going to help us to be able to have a God-centered worldview where God is at the center of everything and we view everything through the lens of the majesty and the glory of who God is. Amen. Amen. Bow your heads with me, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And to the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt. and as your ransom and cushion seba in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored and i love you lord these truths that we walked through this morning were a deep deep biblical truth lord i pray that everything we discussed and learned and gleaned from your word this morning penetrate our hearts to convict us of our view of who you are if it's small or even if it's absent. If it's absent Lord I pray for that person in this room to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ today. Father help us to see your majesty help us Lord help us Lord to behold the beautiful things that you have done And to take this truth all the days of our life, through the joys and through the sufferings. Lord, we love you, and we pray all these things in Christ, in good and holy name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.